You're listening to audio from Redwood Baptist Church. If you need any more information about us, go to www.weareredwood.org. We pray that the message that you're about to listen to will strengthen you, encourage you, and make you more like Jesus. Blessings. Take your Bibles, please. And uh, I want you to turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And as you are, as you're turning there, and before we get into the actual, the actual lesson, I want us to, I want you to think about what are some, and you don't, don't necessarily go personal, if you want to, you can, but just more in a general fashion, what are some of the, what are some of the sins and some, what are some of the habits that are so hard to break? Anybody can think of those? What are some of the things just generally, some of the things that just bring the guilt and the shame? Andrew? Amen. Yeah, so self-reliance, self-righteousness. What are some other sins? Marquita? It's hard to hard to defeat that, isn't it, in our lives? What else? What are some just generalized things? Rick? Pride. And that's, I mean, that's a, you can have pride in a myriad of different ways, but, uh, but getting over that. What are some other, what are some other things that uh, potentially cause great guilt, hard to get over, things like that. Doubt. Okay, anyone else? Have something else? Doubt. All right, I want to I want to continue in our series. Uh, we are in our eighth topic. It's not the eighth time we've been in this um, series because some of them have um, gone over a couple weeks. But uh, we're in our we're in our eighth topic of the series on the conscience that we entitled Fighting for the Purity, Fighting for Purity in an Impure World. And the topic for this morning is the battlefield of the mind. And uh, throughout this series, I've had some come to me and speak about being weighed down by the guilt over their sin. Uh, they're, bi- they're burdened by either wicked behavior in their past or an impure habit that they seem to not be able to break in their present day life. Now, this series is not necessarily the place to deal with specific cases. I do want to offer some encouragement to those that are struggling to kind of to hold up or to bear up under the, 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 the weight of what we would maybe call a heavy conscience, just that conscience that is uh, seemingly very, very heavy. And to be honest with you, the situation that it's a situation that most believers can relate to at one point or another of when their conscience, when just the guilt is ridden, it's heavy. Uh, maybe it's something in the past, maybe it's something in the present, and uh, you are struggling with it. So let me say, first of all, just as a way of trying to be an encouragement to uh, someone that is struggling to kind of bear up under the weight of this heavy conscience. Number one, consider 
that you ha- that consider that how you deal with the promptings of your conscience is a reflection of your view of God. I want you to consider that. That the way you deal with the promptings of your conscience is a reflection of your view of God. Carrying around guilt over sins from long ago that have been addressed in your past could be evidence that you're not fully trusting in the Lord's provision for your sins. I'm not saying that you are not a believer. I'm not saying that you are not a Christian. But you and I are not trusting in the provision that the Lord has made for your past, present, and even future sins. You have got to learn to rest in God's ability that He has and can continue to remove your sins. That you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Look at verse number 12 of Psalm 103. I love this verse. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. So you and I, what we need to do is we need need to examine our hearts and is your view of God too small or your view of sin too big? So if you are continually under this this weight of guilt from your conscience, it's Satan who's the accuser of the brethren, right? The Bible tells us that. He's constantly bringing things up and you are worried about something you did however many years back. You need to have a proper view of God. And that if you've trusted Him as your Savior, that your sins have been separated from you as far as the east is from the west. And you know the picture there. It's in eternity. It's forever. You never go east and never end up being west. It's always, it's just this continual, you are traveling east. And so you and I, we need to have a proper view of the fact that you and I have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Andrew kind of mentioned that. And that has been imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. And that your sins have been separated. From you as far as the east is from the west. Colossians 2 talks about how the transgressions, the ordinances, your sins that were literally being kept record of in your life, all of those things were taken from you and nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so praise God for that. So if you have, and, and, and people have come and they said, hey, what about this? And whatever, go, listen, get a proper view of who God is and what he has done for you. Let me say, secondly, this would be maybe on the other hand. Let's say, Maybe you are struggling with a continued sin in your life. Let me say this. If your conscience is nagging you about an ongoing sinful pattern that maybe you can't seem to break, you need, you ready, to repent of not truly repenting. Let me say that again. So if you and I, we have this habitual sin that we just can't seem to get over, all right, we're not necessarily talking about the sins in the past. Man, you need to have a proper view of, uh, uh, of who God is, and really that even can apply to your, to, to, to your life now and the sin you're doing now, that you've been freed from that, that we're putting these chains back on. But if there is a, 
is a sin that you are in this just ongoing sinful pattern, you need to repent of not truly repenting. Dealing with sin half-heartedly is essentially disguised rebellion. And it is a sure way to train yourself to ignore your conscience altogether. Hopefully you've been through the series and you've heard all of the lessons on our conscience. You and I would begin to run a risk of dulling our conscience or searing our conscience if you keep engaging in repetitive cycles of temptation, sin, and partial repentance. Now, what is repentance? Who can tell me what uh, kind of an easy way of defining repentance would be? Anybody? What's that? Yeah, turning away from it. So you are... You are acknowledging that sin, you are sorry for that sin, and you then are to repent of that sin. You are to turn from that sin. And so, listen, you and I, let me just throw myself in there, we are good at partial repentance. We're trying to just get rid of the guilt. We're trying to just get rid of the bad feeling that you have for when you sin, but if we're not careful, the love for that sin or the life that we think that sin is bringing. A couple Sundays ago, I was preaching on how it just feels like life to sin, and yet we know that it's leading to death. And so you and I, we've got to be careful. We shouldn't play games with our conscience. You know, if you've got to cancel your cable subscription, do so. Be radical. If you've got to cancel your, uh, your internet or you've got to end a relationship, if you've got to change a job, whatever the case is, make whatever radical changes it takes to break your habits before you ruin the sensitivity, ruin your sensitivity to sin, and then ultimately you will cripple your spiritual growth. And so those of you that are that are struggling with that, a pleading conscience is something that you need to awaken yourself to who God is, and he's removed that sin as far as the east is from the west. But if it's this continual, perpetual thing where you're going, then you and I, we've got to We've got to truly, we've got to truly repent, and you guys truly understand that we have the power to no longer sin. But a conscience that is constantly after you could also be an indicator of a much larger spiritual issue. Turn to Second Corinthians 13. Second Corinthians 13. A constant, honest, biblical examination is a vital part of every believer's life. You and I, we need to regularly evaluate what God is doing, how we're, how we're sanctifying, how we're measuring up, so to speak. Now it's his righteousness, praise God, but that we are sanctifying, that we are growing. Look at verse number five. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves, knowing ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. So a nagging conscience could indicate that you're still dead in your sins and therefore you need a Savior. I can't see your heart. You can't see my heart, but God can. And so you know what you ought to do? You ought to begin to examine yourself. You say, man, we are, we are in church. Oh, guys, you and I know that that doesn't mean anything. 
Church, <laughs> I'm glad you're here, by the way, and that you're under the sound of teaching. It's an immense privilege that you've granted me, and I thank you for it. But, but we know that uh, church in and of itself, that doesn't um, prove that anyone is saved. And so if you have questions about your true spiritual condition, I highly recommend that you take it seriously and that you do some biblical self-examination. If you are a Christian burdened with a heavy conscience... I want you to encourage you to find spiritual help through accountability. So if you need to trust Christ, you're still dead in your sins. Boom. That is the, that's the, 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 that's the fuel then for you to live a holy life. But if you are a believer, and again, I don't know your hearts. I would assume that you are. My relationship with you all, I would, if you would ask me, I would say yes. But if, so if you're a Christian, then and you're struggling with things and you're not fully repenting and turning from things, hey, get some accountability. Talk to somebody, open up, be honest, and say, hey, would you hold me accountable in this specific area? But if I tell them, then they're going to know. Listen, isn't that what community is all about? And by the way, this is a grace-centered community, not a law-driven community. And I praise God for that. And so no matter what you would say or what you would bring about, there's no batting of an eye. There's no, I can't believe you'd say that or do that. Instead, all right, let's work through this. Thus, I ought to be able to do the same thing with any one of you. And so that would be my advice to those over these like three months or so that have said, hey, what about this particular area? Hey, get a a, a good remembrance of, of who God is, separated as far as your sin, as far as the east is from the west, your transgressions, everything that were ordinances that were being written against you, been taken away, nailed to the cross. But if it's an ongoing thing right now, and you're not guilty over things in the past, then you and I, we need to repent properly, and we need to turn from that sin. So let's get into the actual concept of the mind, the mind. And it is the danger... Of a sinful mind. No sin is more destructive to the conscience than the sin that takes place in the arena of the mind. Because it is only God and that individual person that can that can know that mind, that can that can know that heart, that can know that arena. First Corinthians two eleven says, For what man knoweth the things of a man? Save the spirit of man which is in him. Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Paul is saying that you and I, we don't know each other's minds. God does. And the spirit of God, if you're a believer, absolutely does. But many people who will not do evil deeds are boldly evil in their thoughts. So a man... I'm a man, so let me use this example. A man may abstain from fornication for fear of being caught. And so, but he'll convince himself that it's all right to indulge in sexual fantasies because he thinks no one else will ever discover such a private thing. And so the sin, listen to me, he deliberately entertains in his mind may be a thousand times more evil than what he would actually do in his life. You okay with that? That's why it's so dangerous. So someone say, hey, hey, I don't want to get caught with fulfilling the actual deed of something like this, but the mind 
will so often go so much further than someone might actually do in real life. The types of fantasies and things that live in this world. Do you remember how I started this series with just the sexual sin? I put the I put the bar up super high. Why? Because of how important this is. Our conscience needs to be strengthened with this. Scripture says that this man's guilt is the same as if he had acted out his fantasies. Matthew 5:27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman and lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So to indulge in sins of thought is to, in a sense, molest the conscience directly. Sins of the mind assault the conscience like, like no other sins because the conscience is the only thing that can deter Those types of things. See, I might have a community around me. I might have a family around me that might stop me from the deed of a sin. But you can't stop my thought life. And so the only deterrent of a filthy, perverted thought life is my conscience. And so when you and I have a thought life and you and I are thinking things, listen, it's a dangerous place. Why? Because the only thing that can stop that is your conscience. But as you are continually thinking about this, you are dulling your conscience. You are searing your conscience. All the things that we've talked about in the weeks prior to this. And so those whose thoughts are impure... They can't have a pure conscience. The guilt is inherent in the evil thought. And so when the thoughts are defiled, the conscience immediately is also. That is why nothing is more characteristic of unbelief than an impure mind combined with a defiled conscience. Titus 1.15, we've looked at this verse. It says, unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. And notice what Paul says. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. So nothing damages the conscience more than the habit of indulging in evil thoughts. Here's the problem, though. Once you start, it's so easy to continue. Because no one quote-unquote sees it right away or, or, or yet. So this is a sin that does not have to wait for an opportunity. This is a sin that doesn't have to wait for the circumstances to be right or the circumstances to lead itself to that sin. There's nothing really hindering it of a thought life that can just go where Ever it wants. And often what I've said is often it will go further than what you would actually commit with the, with the hand or with the actual deed in a life. So the habit is quickly and easily established if we're not, if we're not careful. So engage by, by engaging the inner man, which is the mind, the emotions, the desire, the memory, and the imagination. Thought thinking or, or sinful thoughts work directly on the soul to bias it or, or to, uh, to, to, to make it evil. So a thought 
and you reap an act, right? So an act and you reap a habit. So a habit and you reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. That's not original with me. You've heard that before. Evil thoughts, they, they lay the groundwork for all the other sins. It starts, it starts up here. Turn to Matthew 15, please. Matthew 15. So the mind and the heart is where, where sin is hatched, so to speak. And that's why this is a battlefield that is so important that we, um, that we fight. No one ever falls into adultery. The adulterer's heart is always shaped and prepared by lustful thoughts before the actual deed is ever committed. The heart of a thief doesn't just start with stealing. It's bent towards covetousness. And man, you know what? You and I, we can covet what someone else has and they might not even know it. Why? Because it happens in the mind. You pull into a parking lot and someone else has a nicer car. I'm like, man, I'd be sure I'd like, sure like to have that car. And it starts with the sinful thought process of covetousness. A murderer is a product of what? Anger and hatred. It doesn't just, we don't just wake up one morning, hmm, I'm going to kill somebody. Right? But... Vince right now is on a, a jury where for the last month, right, you've been on a murder jury. I don't know all the details, and we're not going to talk about that now. It's besides the point. But the reality is, is that person didn't just wake up one day and I'm going to kill that person. No, it doesn't work like that. There's, there's, there's envy, there's hatred, there's, there's anger, there's all of these different types of things. And you say, Ryan, you're, you're crazy. No, 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 this is so serious that I literally spoke to my six-year-old last night about this. There was some massive anger. There's an outburst of anger. And so last night I'm sitting down with my six, who's about to be seven in a few weeks, and I'm just thinking, Blake, you've got to ask the Lord to help you with this. And I said, because this, when you get older, it can become such a massive problem that that literally you could just literally take somebody's life and his eyes got all like huge. Like, what? I'm like, yeah, it starts with just unchecked thoughts of anger and bitterness and so on and so forth. So sin first gets incubated in the mind. Jesus taught this to his disciples, like at verse 18 of Matthew 15. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. And they defile the man. Let me give you a little bit of context. You've got the disciples who were eating without washing their hands and they weren't washing, uh, you know, the, the, the pots and things like that. The way the ceremonial law would have said, hey, you've got to do this. And they would have added a lot of things to that. So Jesus is speaking here. But those things which proceed out of the mouth cometh forth from the heart and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. And so Jesus was teaching that the real point of the Mosaic law was the moral truth that was embedded in the external ceremonial requirements. So the requirements that they had, they were ceremonial, external. But Jesus was saying, no, 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 it's the heart of the matter. That's what, 
That's what really matters. He was, in a sense, kind of downplaying the symbolic aspects of washing and abstaining from what is legally declared unclean and those different types of things. Instead, he was emphasizing the moral requirement of the law. So defilement, Jesus was suggesting, is not primarily just an external problem, although it would, have, it would be if you are committing external sin, but what is truly defiling is the spiritual sense. It is the wickedness that emanates from the heart. Now, in Scripture, the heart is, a, uh, is the seat of the whole person. It's their mind, imagination, it's affections, it's the will. It's often a synonym for the mind. And so that's where in our text, you know, as a, I don't know if it's in this text, but as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. There's just a, there's a cinnamon here, or a synonym, excuse me. Cinnamon. How many of you guys like cinnamon? Yum. Mm-mm-mm. So the Lord was condemning the wickedness of an impure thought life. He was saying, hey, hey listen, yeah, you're, you're looking on someone's outside and you're seeing that they didn't wash hands or they're eating meat that wasn't whatever. What about your heart? Your heart. Christ rebuked the Pharisees for their meticulous observance of the external ceremonial law, but their willful neglect to the moral requirements. They were preoccupied with appearing to be righteous. We're going to talk a lot about that at 11 today. just fits in. Yet they were willing to tolerate the grossest of sins in their hearts. They thought no one else could ever discover them. They would have never be seen. Now we know that Jesus can read the heart, right? Jesus could read the mind. Jesus told the disciples, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, <laughs> said in Matthew 9, 4, Wherefore, think ye evil in your hearts. I mean, Jesus knows all that. You and I don't. He compared them to just nice, beautiful, um, you know, crypts or whatever. Sepulchers is what, uh, was what the word says. You know, it says beautiful. It's beautiful on the outside, but you know what it's full of? It's full of death. It's full of, it's full of dead men's bones. Turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, please. We okay? We doing all right? Hey, the mind, it's a battlefield. It's a battlefield. Matthew 23, verse 25 says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye may clean the outside of the cup and of the, plant, of the platter, but within they are all full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are alike unto a whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And so you see here that Man, Jesus is placing the emphasis on the heart. And that's why we've talked so much about the conscience and now we're transitioning at the very end of it to our heart and our, our mind and our heart. Because we could have actually been fooling ourselves throughout the beginning of the series and now I want to end appropriately and say, hey, listen, this is, this is where it really matters. 
You know, often in our Wednesday night group, we're often talking about like, we're going to talk about it this week, but all these last weeks, external things. So often it's like, hey, yeah, no, hey, don't be a stumbling block to somebody else. And we shouldn't. But now we're talking about the heart. It's the stuff that's the most uncomfortable. It's the things that the Holy Spirit is like, boom, boom, boom. And that's what, that's what we're dealing with here. So the Pharisees' teaching, it had so indoctrinated this that the, the, the notion in the people that if it was, it was commonly believed that evil thoughts were not really sinful if they were not acted upon. That's what people would have thought at the day. Well, hey, as long as I, as long as I don't say it, I can think it, right? As long as I don't, you know, I want to cuss that per, I want to just cuss in their face. But as long as I don't say it. Now, obviously, if you say it, there's going to be maybe a little bit more consequences. You might get punched in the nose, things like that. But the reality is, is that you thinking it is sin already, right? Do we know that? It's sin already. If you have heard that it was said before of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. But I say unto you, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Rockus, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. And so we should take, so what should take place in our hearts? What should take place in our minds? What should take place in the, in the innermost recesses of who we are that people can't see? Well, let me show you that. Matthew 6, verse number 3. Matthew 6, please. The answer is, is worship. Worship to God. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. That thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And the point I'm trying to make here is that Jesus is literally not saying that, you know, when you do your alms, uh, let's just say for the sake of illustration that we're going to give a phone to somebody, you know, Sonia is in great need, and I don't want this hand to see it, so... You know, here's a phone. That's not, Jesus is not saying that, okay? What he's saying is just that, 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 that it, it, it's in the heart. It's not to be seen of man. Because man can only see the outside. But the emphasis that Jesus has placed on it, he's like, hey, I see your heart. And so as you're giving to that person, it doesn't say that you shouldn't give to people. Absolutely you should. But God is saying, I see your heart. Why are you giving that person that thing? Why do you want it to be seen of others? Or when you pray, why do you want to pray just only when other people can hear you? What about your closet? Why? Because in the deepest recesses of your heart, giving would absolutely be a form of worship. Prayer is an absolute form of worship. The deep center of who you are ought to be at worship with who God is. So to sin in the mind is to desecrate the very sanctuary where our highest and best worship 
should be taking place. So regardless of how you present yourself to the outside world, the Lord has a front row seat to everything that goes on in your mind. So let me ask you a question. Are you glorifying him? Are you worshiping him with your thoughts? Only you can answer that. God's laid this particular portion of the lesson on my heart to share with you, but I am not up here in front of you standing afar from you as if somehow I don't need this desperately as well. Turn to Romans chapter 12, please. Romans chapter number 12. So are you glorifying him with your thoughts or are you cultivating a sinful mental habits that ultimately will cripple your spiritual growth and poison your hearts? Now this is going to go back to my very first point here this morning. Look at verse number one, Proverbs chapter, excuse me, Romans, I don't know where Proverbs came from. Romans chapter 12. Verse number one, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's a renewal of the mind. Now, you and I know theologically that prior to salvation, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, excuse me, would teach us that all of us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 1, and then verse 2 and 3 talk about how all of us were just following the, the, the way of this world, the principalities of the air, Satan literally just had his way with you. All of us were on the broad path that leaded to destruction, Matthew 7 tells us, all of us were. Okay, we were shaping in iniquity. Uh, you and I, we are not um, sinners because we sin. We are sinners because we are the nature. Or we were born sinners. Okay, and so that was that was our direction. So all all mankind are all headed towards destruction because of the Adamic nature that came down from the Garden of Eden. We understand that. Now all of us have chosen to sin too, multiple times. Okay, but. The theological position you were in was you were depraved and you were needing rescue in Jesus Christ. And so in Ephesians 2, it describes who we were, that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. You and I, prior to salvation, we were just walking dead men, spirit completely dead. And then you and I, we were made alive. We were quickened. The Holy Spirit took up residence in us and the, the, the very Spirit of Christ within us. And old things passed away and praise God, all things became new. Right? We Theologically, we understand that. But you and I, we still have what we would call the flesh. I mean, John Van Gelderen puts it, I mean, just beautifully how we no longer serve that anymore. We no longer serve sin. We no longer have that master over us because now we have a new master. Who's the new master? Who? Jesus, right? The Spirit, right? The Spirit of Christ within us. He's the new, he's the new master of our life. And yet you and I, we still have a, just that sinful flesh that you and I are having to continue to be sanctified 
right? We believe in positional sanctification, definitely, but then also there is that practical ever becoming more and more like Christ. And that happens through the renewing of your mind, the transforming of your mind, retraining your mind, asking God to give you new appetites, Renewed affections, the, um, the, the, the purest of the old days used to call it. renewed affection. The things that you love and the things that you desire become renewed. They become born again, and praise God for that. Turn to Hebrews chapter number 4. Hebrews 4. Verse number 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. You and I go back to that very first point. Hey, remind yourself of what you have in Christ and what God has done for you. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so you and I, we have this, we have this advocate within us. We have this advocate in heaven assisting you every moment of every single day to have your mind renewed. Now listen, you and I, we've got to submit to that renewal. We've got to submit to what Christ is trying to do in our lives. You and I, we can resist God, can we not? We absolutely can. And so you and I, we've got to, we've got to allow him to do the work. We've got, to, we've got to use the word of God, which is what? Sharper than any two-edged sword, right? It can literally... It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's what we've been talking about, thoughts and heart. So the Word of God, you get into it. And this is your very source of power for you to be able to go through this. Look at verse number 12. I kind of quoted it, but let's look at verse number 12 of Hebrews 4. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so you and I, we have been given what we need to fight the minefield of the mind. It's literally just, it's dangerous. If we're not, if we're not careful, it could be literally from our mind, could literally be exploding to all other areas of our life. And so it's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. I think of, I think of Luke 22, Jesus is getting ready to take his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. They're actually already there. And he's getting ready to give his life a ransom. Getting ready to be um, taken by Judas and all those that were going to come and take Jesus. And he said, Simon, Simon, which is unique. Simon is also known as Peter, right? Throughout most of the Bible, he's known as Peter. And yet Jesus uses his name Simon. You know what the name Simon means? To listen. 
And then he uses it twice. Man, what if Jesus used your name twice? Andrew, Andrew. <laughs> right? Simon, Simon. Hey, listen, listen. Then the next word Jesus says, behold. Stop. Pay attention. Be aware of what's about to happen. And then he goes on to say, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. That word sift means to riddle, to agitate, and he wants to do it up in the mind. But Jesus said a beautiful thing. But I prayed for you that your faith fail not. I mean, how awesome is that? And so what Jesus is saying, he's saying, listen, the, the battlefield is the mind. The opponent is always Satan. Don't put a, don't put a face to your enemy. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. Okay? The enemy is always Satan, and the ammunition that he always uses, it's always lies. Always. And so, but you and I, we've got the power to be able to fight against those. And it comes back to your position in Christ. So you and I, we can win because we've already, finished it, won. That's why we can win. You're not fighting for it, you're fighting from it. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and... God, when we think of this concept of the mind, no doubt there's been conviction. I have sensed it in my own life and even in this room this morning. And God, I pray that, Lord, we would, that we would dig deeper than just the external conformities of Christianity, but that we would allow the very inner man of who we are to be renewed, our minds to be renewed. And we're thankful that we have the power, we have the, the new nature, the new master, within us that can conquer any area that we have just been lacklusterly repenting of and instead gain the victory personally in the here and now of our life. And God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray you'd continue to challenge us in this area of being pure in a very unpure world. I pray, Lord, now as we look back into the book of Mark here at in our next service, that you would be glorified with that as well. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll take about a seven-minute break. You are dismissed.